Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your hosts, Michael Fragan and Phil Goldfeder, here on the Nahum Siegel Network, NahumSiegel.com. Welcome back, Phil. Great to be back. Thanks. Uh, good to see you again, Michael. Bright and early on this uh, beautiful, rainy Thursday morning. Beautiful. And beautiful and raining. Definitely uh, the, the rain of blessings. I'm uh, a consummate optimist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's amazing, considering uh, what's going on in the world. Phil, you, you know, the last time... We were together, the government was shut down, and now we're back together, and the government is still shut down. Longest shutdown in history. I mean, I, it's funny because there's so many things that we discuss, and I think probably earlier on in, in our tenure, it was like, oh man, I'm surprised by this, I'm surprised by this. Michael, I don't think anything surprises me anymore in terms of, there's always, historically, even when there is a shutdown, I think most of us are kind of a little desensitized to it because we all know like, oh, okay, the last two days or the last five days or the last 10 days. But this is this is, this is is getting out of hand. Um, this is getting out of hand. And, and it's all, as we see from the State of the Union squabble, uh, it's all personal, it, it basically. I mean, it's, the whole thing is kind of kind of thrown out the window of any sense of okay we're gov- we're operating in a normal government we're operating in a normal fashion here uh it's this is entirely a tit for tat high stakes poker game with a lot of collateral damage look today is day 34 but but you know again day 34 day 34 day 34 think about it this has gone over for more tomorrow than- federal employees will have missed their second paycheck and can you imagine not getting paid for a month i, I mean look at it's funny my wife asked me the same exact question we were talking about it over dinner yesterday and and we had that exact conversation can you imagine not getting a paycheck and not having any other money or any other income coming in and then not getting a second paycheck right it's I mean, you know, it, you're, you're essentially unemployed, right? You've got to start looking to do but other things. But some people still have to go to work. They're unemployed and they still have to go to work. And so it was reported the IRS workers who had been furloughed, meaning they, you know, they sort of had didn't have to come in, now have all been called back, about 35,000 IRS workers, right? Because we're in tax season. You know what I think is going to be fascinating, right? When all of a sudden people can't get their tax returns back. I know that I'm going to the accountant in a few weeks. I know that I like to get my, you know, my refund a few days after I hit the accountant. You, you make that sound like going to the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> it is not a, it's not always a pleasant experience. But, but the IRS workers actually have a hardship clause apparently in their contract. I read this yesterday. Is and that, the union is telling them don't come in. Don't come in. As opposed, let's say TSA workers. Correct. Like I mean, who must be absolutely miserable? As opposed to the Coast Guard, who must be absolutely miserable? And the FBI, the ICE, Customs and Border Protection. I mean, all the people that we rely on to secure our border are, in the name of border security, are not getting paid. And I, I you know what, I'm going to say this, and, and I hope I hope our listeners sort of truly understand this and embrace this idea that, you know, look, everybody, the right is blaming the left, the left is blaming the right, the House is blaming the president, the president is blaming Nancy Pelosi. Everybody is at fault. Everybody, I, you know, it's funny, and I, I think that, there's a responsibility from the House to sort of step up and do something. There's a responsibility from the president. I, I think they're both right and they're both wrong, right? Look, at the end of the day, you know, the president is asking for this wall. There's no question that he's asking for the wall, but he's not doing it because we think the wall is actually going to help anything. He's doing it because he has to save face from the political base, right? It's all symbolism. It's all, I mean, that's it, exactly what it is. It's not a real thing like, oh, we need the wall. And ultimately, it's, it's not a national emergency because nothing has changed from today than was a month ago, than was two months ago, than was three months ago, than was six months ago. There's nothing that, that happened in the last month. And so this concept that like we need the wall because there's some security risk, is just the facts don't bear that out. It's just not true. And at the same time, right, 
it's politics like anything else. We've all done it. We've all had issues that we agree with, we disagree with, and you have to make compromises on. And so I think that there's got to be some give. And so there's a plan that was floated yesterday or, or earlier this week where we'll give the five, the House said, or the Democrats, we'll give the $5.7 billion for border security, but not for, but the, wall. Not for the wall, right. which I actually think, and again, it didn't really pick up traction. We'll see what happens. I actually think that's a good compromise, right? You want border security, then we will give you that 5.7 for border security. But let's be clear, right? The drugs, the crime, the illegal immigration is not coming over the wall. It's coming through points of entry. It's coming through other places. It's just, it's just not, the wall is just not going to help. What do you make of the State of the Union whole thing? I mean, it's it's as if, okay, so you're not going to give the State of the Union. I, I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to have a State of the Union address and say the state of our union is strong when, in fact, the government is set, shut down. So the idea that the president would go ahead and do that in general kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. But then, but clearly, it, it became a total personal thing i love how the president actually yesterday he didn't was quite kind of caught off guard on tv and he says and they told him about that and he like had to internalize it for a second and he says nancy pelosi and i like to call her nancy right <laughs> <laughs> now that's her nickname apparently her the nickname that the president has chosen for nancy pelosi is nancy um but then in the end he blinks he, he just says instead, of, you know, they were going to have an alternative location. He was going to go somewhere else. He was going to give the speech, everything. And then he tweets. He says, I'm not giving. I'm going to wait for the government to reopen. Now, number one, maybe there's hope that the government reopened. Maybe he's softening a little bit. Um, but Nancy seems to be maybe maybe he underestimated her. Uh, oh, I absolutely do. I think he did. I mean, I absolutely think he did. And I also think that it was silly of him. To push back, right? You know, let her sort of take, you know, let her, quote unquote, be the petty one by saying, don't do the speech and don't push back. Just Plus the fact you can't like, win because she controls the, yeah, but I, I, she you has know, all the cards. It's funny because I keep trying to make sense of it. Like, oh, if only he would have done this, he would have looked better. But, but he doesn't take my advice clearly. He doesn't seem to take anybody's advice because at the end of the day, she controls the State of the Union. Nancy Pelosi in the House absolutely controls the chamber. And if the president wants to give a State of the Union from another location and break I mean, I mean, literally break years and years of history. It's just sort of like who looks bad at that point. So some would say, right, the base, the 33 percent, the 35 percent who actually support this president would would sort of put it on her. But I think the majority of the country is sick and tired of of the bluster, is sick and tired of of the tweets and the Twitter. And, and by the way, I don't think he's going to change. I don't I'm not telling him to change. God bless, but I, I think 2020 is going to be a lot rockier than, than this president thing. Than this rockier? President wow. I mean, you don't think that they can reach some kind of working accommodation? Between no, them? I do. Look, I, I, was, I was thinking past the shutdown. I mean, why, I do. Can't I, every, why can't they just kind of learn and figure out that this is what's going to be best for the country? So credit to, to, to Lee Zeldin yesterday. He gave a floor speech yesterday, and he's a Republican here, from, here on Long Island, who basically said, like, we shouldn't go home. We shouldn't do anything. We shouldn't get paid. We should sit in the chamber and work. Do our job. And do our job until it is done. And so I actually think that's a good idea. I mean, look, if, if I were in Congress, I would say that, like, I will not leave Washington. I will not leave the chamber until everybody has. And you require every one of the 435 members. I don't know if there's 434 right now. Every member sit in the chamber until a deal is done. I guarantee except you. Did, except it didn't work because the House is going home today. Uh, that's that's exactly right. The house is going home today. It's disappointing. It's disappointing it, because again, we're talking about we're talking about symbolism, right? 
Congress is going home while TSA workers, right? How does a Congress member go to the airport to go home today and go through security? What does he say to that TSA agent? What does he say? You know, sorry, you're stuck sitting in your job and not getting paid, but I'm going home, right? Well, they could say... I mean, it depends which party you're from. <laughs> and what state you're, you're going to. <laughs> but I guess I guess my response in general, and I think that this is probably, unfortunately, the setup line. And I you know, I believe politically, and I think the polls show that the Republicans have backed themselves into a corner and dug a very, very deep hole here on this. But if Mexico would pay for the wall, this would all be fine. Oh, you mean like the president said they would? Well, I mean, but that is in fact the truth. He didn't say it once. He said it a million times. So if Mexico's paying for the war, we don't need to shut down the government in order to do that. I know the Republicans will come on TV and they have all kinds of, and I have a lot of good answers for that as well. However, at its core, that's the real problem here, is you promise something that we don't need and said we wouldn't pay for it. Right. But if you really want it, you really wanted to get somebody else to pay for it, well, then do it. I, it just doesn't seem – now you, you, the 800,000 federal workers and American people must suffer because of this – because of something that really doesn't have the support of most of the country and doesn't have the support of Congress. I mean that's really the very basic issue that it comes down to. It comes down to is – you have to have support in order to pass legislation. And if you don't have the, it was the same thing with repealing Obamacare, right? You couldn't get there. You could talk about it all you want, and you want to criticize Congress. You want to criticize individual legislators for not making it happen. But these are the rules. These are the way, this is how it happens. So if you could have gotten Mexico to pay for the wall, great. We would be, we wouldn't be. Now that you can't get Mexico to pay for the wall, and the Democrats don't want to pay for the wall, and you couldn't get Republicans to pass it in the past two years. It's time to move on. You know, it was interesting. You know, it's funny because, you know, everybody you talk to and you talk about the failure after failure after failure with this president to actually do everything he said he was going to do on the campaign. I'm the best deal maker. Anybody, you know, shutdowns will never happen under my watch. Right. Like I know Congress better than everybody. Right. And they all point to they all point the one thing that supporters and, and a lot of our listeners are supporters of President Trump all point to the economy, the economy, the stock market. Do You know, the one week where the, the stock market was taking a, a dive. And you didn't hear one word from the president about the stock market. And you didn't hear one word from any of his supporters about the strength of the economy. And I hate to say it, economies go up and down. And there's going to be a time, and I, I hope it doesn't come soon, there's going to be a time where there's going to be a bump in the road, as, as histor history has proven there always is. And then what are you going to say, right? What are you going to say? Look, I, I take issue with the idea of the failures of the president. I mean, I think that there are shortcomings. I don't think overall that I would call this over and over. I don't like the president's rhetoric. I do uh, I do think that he has had some quite a few successes uh, on certainly on certain fronts. But you know I think that he gets he trips himself up. I mean, one example of course is you know this whole thing with with ISIS, right? I mean, you know talk about this last week, but, you, know, you know, Mike Pence is out there talking about ISIS, utterly defeated, etc. Then they commit terrorist attack on the same day and they can't figure out how. A lot of it is about the messaging. And he, he's he's great on the campaign messaging and dominating the messaging in the campaign. He's been poor at best but on, on the messaging side. But that's because he doesn't have to govern. I mean, look, well, I was getting to that. I think that that's I think I, I, I think that that's true. I think what you're saying is absolutely true. And, you know, I think that that's a great segue for us into looking at 
2020, right? The Democratic field, I think now eight or nine, including the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who uh, yesterday got into the race. Uh, well, not even sure. Pete, he's got some very interesting There's last more name. More people running for president than are running for New York City public advocate right now. <laughs> <laughs> but that is a that is probably that's po- very possible that we will reach 20 people running for for president on the Democratic side. But you have some, you know, right now, you know, Kamala Harris is now this you know big name, Christian Gillibrand, uh, you know, of New York. Uh, interestingly enough, she polls i think third or fourth amongst new york oh no no she, the, she polls third amongst new yorkers potentially who might run for president after mike bloomberg, mike bloomberg and 27 percent and andrew cuomo by the way but ahead of, dead last but ahead of bill de blasio had bill de blasio, ahead of bill de blasio. literally the last uh, I mean, person Phil, in new york. on your you know your side of the uh of the alley here where you know how do you size up this field this Definitely going to be more people getting in, Cory Booker and you know others. Um, it's pretty interesting. Here's what I would say, and I, I think the Democrats... The Are you Democrats, ready to make an endorsement right now? No, not okay, quite yet, okay. but I think the Democrats Next would be week. wise to look at 2018. And look where the successes of 2018 and the way in which they won the House in 2018 was, was able to be accomplished. And that was not by ideological far fringe politics right it's 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 not the bernie sanders is or the elizabeth warrens of the world who are going to cal- galvanize sort of the moderates and and the majority of the country to to get behind um and win and, and win uh, and win an election now the challenge is this, this is a primary right so we're talking about primary voters and so the question is is who's the best representative for the democratic party in the general election I don't believe that to be somebody who's on the far left or on the fringe part of the party. I think what we saw in 2018, that you saw a lot of moderates, right, take out Republicans in in Republican-leaning districts because they're willing to work with the president. They're willing to sort of take Republican, quote-unquote, positions in an effort to get things done. And I think that's what sort of swept that wave, the blue wave in 2018. I think that's what we have to look at for 2020. Now, yes. How does that person win a primary? That's the challenge, right? How do you win a primary? It would be the same challenge on the Republican side. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's... It's sad. Now, this also, remember, it's hard to sort of figure out what would happen in 2020 and put the primary aside because... I still believe that that this president will not run for re-election. That's my prediction, right? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but that's that's what I think. I don't think the president will run for re-election. Two things. Number one is I don't think he likes the job. But number two is I think he's going to see the writing on the wall that the same tactics that worked in 2016 will not work again in 2020 because you'll have four years of what will be perceived as not winning so much, right? I don't want to say failures. I don't want to, you know, we just had that conversation, but I, I think... I think he has seen this as, as much more complicated than he initially in, imagined. I think he'll see the writing on the wall, and in order to save grace, I think he'll gr- he'll he'll find a way to bow out. That that's my prediction, which changes everything, right? Because, you know, it, it's hard to to sort of think about who the primary on the Democratic side is or will be or could be or should be if you really don't know what you're up against um, and whether it's a more right-leaning well, Republican or a more moderate Republican. Meaning, I think the, the race looks different. The race against Mike Pence is going to look very different than the race against yeah, Donald Yeah, but look, Trump. if you take a look back, and if it's not Donald Trump, if it's if it's uh, Romney? Romney or Kasich or, or any one of those folks, right? Or Larry Hogan of governor of Maryland. I think they win noise in the landslide. I think they win in a bigger margin than Donald Trump won um, if it's a moderate Republican. I think... I think if it was, if it was anybody, you think the Republican will win them in a landslide. I think if in 2016, any other Republican would have won in a landslide against Hillary Clinton, and I think any other Democrat would have won in a landslide against Donald Trump. 
I mean, I, I really do think it was. I mean, those two candidates are almost kind of meant for each other. Interesting, interesting. Actually, I, I, I kind of think that Trump was the only Republican who would have won. I, 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 because I just think that that was the way, you know, things were going, and you know, he, he really upset the political calculus. I mean, w- look, we don't know. Yeah, I'm not uh, looking, looking at 2020, but, but who, but who do you, who, who are you thinking out there, or who might get it? I mean, let's look at Mike Bloomberg for a second. We mentioned him, okay? We, we both like Mike Bloomberg. We both work for Mike Bloomberg. Is does he have a lane? Does he have a opportunity to make an impact on the Democratic side? This is not. Does the Democratic Party want a corporate CEO, a wildly successful one? Uh, you know, look, it, it worked in New York. For a long time, it worked in New York. And, and Mike Bloomberg has proven that he's there to do the best that he can for, you know, for the country. Again, back in, back when we worked there for the city, there was no politics. There was no favoritism. There was no, it was like, what's the best decision to move our city forward? And I think he kind of brings that, he could bring that brand um, to the, to the national stage but Look, he's out there promoting stop and frisk right he gives a speech this week and he says stop and frisk was a huge success which it was statistically you could say actually it did had its problems but at, but that's certainly not where the democratic party is yeah, that's but, not where the activist wing is that's not where the, the, the primary two, voters are the, the two biggest issues that mike bloomberg is really known for today and, and you put the mayorality aside and some of those issues aside the two biggest issues that he's known for today what he actively spends his time on is, is, is climate change which i think is a, is a great talking point for the left and gun control which is another great talking point for the left those are the two issues that he's i mean he started with mayors against against illegal guns right he's been very active and vocal about these uh, uh, about these issues for a very long time and so i think that plays could potentially play to the left, but I also look at a candidate like Beto O'Rourke, right? A guy like Beto O'Rourke who ran as a Democratic senator in Texas and came within just a few votes of taking out Ted Cruz, I think is a, is, is a very great symbol for what the Democratic Party could be, right? It wasn't about far-left um, ideology. It was about what's the best interest of getting things done in his last campaign for the state of Texas, not because I'm a Democrat, not because I'm a Republican, but because I care about this state, I care about this country, and that's why you should vote for me. And I think we're thirsty for a candidate like that. I mean, I really think even Republicans, more moderate Republicans, and not the, I'm, I'm not talking to the 33% who still support this president. I'm talking to moderate Republicans who actually are looking for someone who's going to make a deal and get things done and not always do anything because the party says so. Right, a, a clear, straight ideologue. Right, you Bernie Sanders and 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 so many others who Elizabeth Warren, who literally do what they do because the ideology dictates that, not because it's always the best. Not thing because to do. they believe in that. Look, they believe in it, but it doesn't make it the right thing for the entire country. Wow, that's a uh, what a terrible criticism of. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Look, by the way, and I, I, I'm quite certain I've said this on this show before. Right, it's the 202060 rule. Right, you can't rule from the far right. You can't rule from the far left. Not you can't govern um, from either side, from either political party. You have to govern for the 60 to 70 percent of the people in this country who wanna, who want safe streets, who want good education, who want you know you know want a clean environment. That's that's what that most people want. It's not about who want immigration reform. Right. That's right. Who by the way. Immigration reform should be a bipartisan fix. You've seen it before with we've, we've John tried. McCain, we've John tried. McCain, and and so many other Republicans and Democrats who have sat together in the past. Ultimately, immigration reform together with border security. That's exactly what we should be looking at. That's exactly right. And sadly, too often you see the far right 
right? And, and it was the Tea Party 15 years ago or 12 years ago. And today it's, it's, it's the liberal left sort of progressives who are literally putting a wrench in our ability to actually get things done. And you're seeing it today. Not today. It's not about ideology, but it's just plain stubbornness, right? I think I'm right. I think I'm right. You know, we should do this. We shouldn't do this. And there's no desire or willingness or any... Um, any any sign of any of the sides letting up and that's because most are trying to make their point right but yeah as we both know what most members of congress are nervous about well not most i mean many members of the house are nervous about it primaries as opposed to general elections uh, although right we saw in 2000 uh, 18, most of these swing districts, uh, these general elections, those went to Democrats in many, in, or many, in many, many cases. Let's, let's change gears for a second. I want to talk about Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen did subpoena, or not subpoenaed, asked to come testify before the uh, House Oversight Committee, and uh, essentially Rudy Giuliani goes on TV and threatens him, or threatens his family, and now he's not testifying. Um what what do you make of this? I I have no words. I I've never. <laughs> what happens? What happened to Rudy, Phil? I mean, we, you know, we watched this guy for <laughs> Michael. I, like I know you didn't work directly for him. I know you worked sort of you know in similar circles as, as Rudy Giuliani. I mean, I, I was a volunteer in the nineteen ninety seven uh, mayoral well, uh, well, reelect. There you go. Actually. And there so you go. Uh, I I can't explain it. I, I can't because do we forget? And I think it's it's almost just about forgotten that he was the country's mayor. Right, like he was the U.S. attorney. He was the most well-respected, well-regarded mayor who sort of, you know, stood on that the top of the heap at nine eleven and 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 sort of projected strength and stability. And today, he barely represents sanity. I mean, it's unreal to watch him on the on the on the news shows and to hear him speak and just. I don't know if he's just making so much money and so he's willing to do whatever the president tells him to do, or I don't know if, if, if he's just become unstable. I, I, I honestly have no words. I, because whether you're a Democrat or Republican, right, in 2002 and 2003 and 2004 and in sort of the earlier parts of his post-mayorality, mayorality, he was still very well regarded amongst Democrats, amongst Republicans. He was still polling very, very well. I mean, he just... He was seen as as that symbol of strength post nine eleven, and today, that is gone. I mean, history is history, and he'll always have his his point in history. But I mean, his legacy and his they, they asked him about it this week. His legacy right. is 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 over. I mean, it's, like what do you what do you destroyed. want it, do you want it to say on your they asked on TV? Do you want it to stand your tombstone that you lied for Donald Trump? And he said, I'm very concerned about that. <laughs> yeah, he should be concerned about that because this was somebody that, look, it didn't mean he had to go away when he was finished being mayor, right? Just the opposite. I think he actually, like, I don't think many people took him seriously in 2008 when he when he was going to run for president. And I, but I don't think every, anybody thought he could win. I'm mean, going to take that back. Oh, I, I don't I, think anybody I, thought he could win. Maybe I, some did, but, but nobody laughed. Everybody said, wow, yeah. okay, this is a, a man with national ambitions who was there for New York, was a symbol of strength. Well, he had a very York. interesting strategy, but but yes, I, I don't disagree. You know, he, he but we'll go, we can go back to 2008. I mean, he had some kind of idea about how he might win, which seemed plausible on paper. Yeah, look, and, and but my, I think the point I was trying to make was that like, whether you thought he could win or, or not, there was a certain oh, respect. Yeah. You know, Correct. you respected that, yeah, he, you know, 
this could be this is a great candidate. He stands for something strong. He he sort of has a legacy of 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 strength in governing. And so that was it was not a it wasn't a, a it wasn't I don't want to say it wasn't laughable. It was more I hate saying saying that because it's the opposite. It was actually you know I think people looked at it and said okay he's got a strategy and and, and sort of gave him his shot. Today. I think he's sort of a national laughing stock. Even Trump supporters, I think, look at him as 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 a laughing stock for someone who literally, you know, just doesn't put coherent sentences together and and doesn't stand on on has no basis and anything he says has no basis in the truth. See, I have a little bit of a different theory here. I kind of have this idea that they are. This is classic. Uh, he has adopted kind of the classic Trump rhetoric. That he is—it's a lot of the misdirection. It's a lot of misleading. You know, shiny apples. Look over here. Look over there. Don't look here. Don't look at you know. And he goes on TV and he does it. He's actually done it quite well. Kind of mislead. I don't mislead. Misdirects. Well, he says you know here. Go ahead. You know th- that has worked for that has worked for the president and it worked during the election and potentially it's working now. A lot of times the media is just chasing its tail when it's trying to figure out. So look, it made news when, the, when, the, when Rudy Giuliani was first appointed as the president's lawyer and he made those statements and admitted to things that people didn't know were actually admitted to and right and sort of it made a splash. And I think the first couple of weeks and even the first month or so sort of it was making news. I, I, honestly, I couldn't tell you what Rudy Giuliani said over the weekend I, and I follow, right? I, there's, obviously, there's just so much to follow, but... I don't think it makes news anymore. I think a lot of people have just written him off in terms of someone who has similar bluster, but is not the president. <laughs> well, that is true. Uh, Phil, this week, big news in the Jewish, in our own side, our own Jewish tribe. Uh, our friend, uh, Rabbi Yehiel Mark Kalish of Chicago, appointed to a Democratic House of Representatives in Illinois seat. Uh, similar to a state assembly type seat, exactly the that, same. Except you had to win a special election for it, but uh, he had it the easy way. Uh, you know what? Do we, what do you make of this? You know the I making it the first ordained Orthodox rabbi to uh, to enter the leg, any legislature. So let me first start so, by saying, if it's going to be anybody, it should be it should be Yechiel Kalish. I'm I'm. A, a tremendous fan. We go back a very long way. You We're, make it sound like future tense. It it happened already. Just stop. Just in case you weren't. <laughs> I was making a point. It like is somebody. It. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, if it is going to be, it should be him, and it, it is him. And, it's well and deserved. It's really, it's very, a well deserved appointment. It's very very well deserved. Um, I you know just to to understand in every state the legislature has a different name. In New York, it's it's the legislature and. In Illinois, it's the House of Representatives. It's the Illinois House of Representatives. Also, interestingly enough, in New York, when somebody resigns, my predecessor, Audrey Pfeffer, before me, resigned. And so there's what we call a special election. And so you have to actually run an election. And for me, that was the hardest election I ever faced, right? Um, In Illinois, the laws laws are a bit different, and it's appointed by a three-person panel that appoints the successor. They interview all the candidates. From what I understand, there was actually 20 candidates vying for this seat. Um, and ultimately, it was given to Rabbi Kalish, and I'm I'm very excited. I, I think he's the right person to to represent and, and make a kiddush Hashem for the Jewish community. But I also think he's the right person to bring common sense to government in Illinois. Illinois is an interesting state. Um, only in the last couple of years have I, I dug in to really truly understand Illinois politics. Eerily similar in, in layout and makeup to New York. Um, you know, as sort of Chicago being the center here, and New York City being the center of, of politics. Um, 
outside of Chicago, very rural, very Republican, very much like upstate, right? right? Very much like upstate New York. And so very, very similar districts. And, and, and I wish him nothing but the absolute best. And I think he's going to do a great job, uh, make a Kiddush Hashem. And, and I, I, I hope we don't have to have this conversation. I hope he'll continue to ease through election after election. But I, uh, I'm sure that, that we'll be following it a lot closer. And, and you and I are going to be talking about Illinois politics a bit more. I, I imagine we're going to have to learn a little bit. I mean, one of the things, you know, he, he goes straight away to Israel, taking pictures at the Kotel uh, and you know, asking for guidance and wisdom. Uh, you know, what what about the tension that you might think is, you know, Orthodox Jew in office uh, as we close this? You know, how difficult is it to balance those interests? And and will his non-Orthodox and non-Jewish constituents n- feel that they're being represented, too? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know the exact makeup of his district or his district specifically. I can tell you that. Look, it's, it's not an easy job. As someone who's held that job and had to balance those, the ideological viewpoints of, of certain wings of the Democratic Party, right? And how do you how do you sort of how do you mesh that with your upbringing or your morals or your values that that have sort of been instilled in you from from your your background or your religion? He is, he's a rabbi, right? And so I think even more than me, he's going to be held to even a higher standard as a standard bearer. His yarmulke is more visible. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's not easy. You've never gotten that before. Okay. I, I don't know what you're talking about. It is a very, it is a very, look, being in public service is a very, very taxing and difficult job. It is. It is something that, that is nonstop. You're on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I, people always say, well, 24, six, you mean? I said, no, because I, I worked just as hard when I was in shul and, and dealing with problems as I did when when I wasn't so it was 24 7 and so I, I have nothing but but good wishes for Yechiel and, and and hope that that he continues to sort of carry on the tradition of, of Kiddush Hashem in everything that he does all right we'll have to grab him for the show uh, next time he makes it to the Big Apple uh, Phil welcome back thank you for a great show this week here on the Nachum Siegel Network stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs